We're still in Acts. Uh, we're doing Acts 13 and 14 today. Um, if you're like me, though, um, I find that often when you start to really get into a book, you can get sort of lost in the details. So today we're going to try to do sort of a 10,000-foot view, and then we'll come back and look at like more of the details. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to corporately come together to worship you, to be united, um, to see the bride united like this, Lord. Lord, I pray that um, as we, we are gathered here, um, as I, I work through your word, that you would um, work, that you would, you would be the one who would be speaking, that your word would be communicated well, um, that you would show us what you would have us see. In your name, amen. So just to recap, always, I try to keep coming back to this. So the facets of what we saw in Pentecost reframe what we should be thinking as we go through Acts. So those five facets that we sort of looked at at the beginning um, as we looked at Pentecost. One, God reclaimed the nations from the authority of rebellious angels. Uh, it's an inversion of Babel. Um, and so that's a fundamentally significant thing. You know, what's, what happens at Babel changes the world. And so now there's this inversion there. Um, two, the church corporately is the temple where heaven and earth lap, overlap. They are the temple. They are the garden. Um, and that in itself is just another crazy claim. Number three, um, we're called into a new exodus. Jesus leads us into that new exodus um, so that we are reclaiming the promised land and growing the kingdom of God. Four, um, we are brought back from spiritual death. Um, we're not joined to just anything. We're brought, joined to the very um, life-giving breath of God. And that completely changes, changes things. Number five, we're brought, uh, we are prophets. Um, we're those who are invited into God's counsel. That comes with a lot of responsibility. That means we are to intercede for others. We are to learn from the Father so that we can communicate his wisdom to others. So those are the facets, and we'll come back to those. So, uh, number, uh, if you want those, I, I can get them to you. I didn't put them in the notes because I run out of, like, space on my notes. Uh, especially because I make the font big enough so I can, other people can read it. Um, it, it Maybe for you, I, I find it ironic, the fact that um, in Acts 13, Paul strikes a man blind, um, since he was struck blind not that many chapters ago. Um, I, just the fact that, <laughs> that this happens is, to me, slightly um, ironic or, or humorous, just to sort of think about. But, you know, when I really, when I really stop and, and think about what Scripture has been sort of driving at from the beginning, the goal or one of the goals of scripture, is to give us um, a corrective lens for seeing the world. And w- next slide for me, would you, Zadok? Um, yeah, no worries. So, you know, it, the idea is to, to put on these glasses so that we can see the world the way God sees the world, right? I mean, that's what Genesis 1 starts out saying, right? Is God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. He created light. He saw that it was good. He brings the land up out of the waters. He saw that it was good. He looks at all of creation and he says, it's very good. Eve, though, on the other hand, she saw that the tree was good. She desired the tree. And so she defines good and evil on her own terms uh, due to not just her, but that there's something else there. That snake is there in the garden inviting her to not see the world the way God wants her to see the world, but to see the world some other way. So there's this constant tension just from the very beginning, which is there is this invitation to see the world for this way where we start to define things or this way where where God is the one who's truly showing us what the world looks like, what it truly looks like. And so you can 
see that you know, in, in so many stories, but just a couple. Jacob, you know, he, he's sleeping, and he sees the angels ascending and descending on this, this ramp, this staircase. And he wakes up, and he's like, whoa, like this, where I am right now is so amazing. He doesn't, he doesn't look and go, well, I don't see that thing, so therefore it's not real. He goes, no, like I, I got a revelation of something that is greater than just the physical world. Balaam's donkey has a revelation. Now, you know, it, it, again, an ironic story from the standpoint of the prophet is supposed to be the one who sees things more clearly. But the donkey is the one who sees more clearly in the story. And he's like, come on, Balaam, do you not see? You know, and finally Balaam sees. You know, it's like, okay, like there is a way to see the world. In each of these stories, we, we, are, we are being invited to say, like, look, you can look at the physical world. And you can look at just the physical world. And you can say, this is all there is. But in each of these stories, there's more than just the physical world. So we're being invited to see that, to see through God's eyes, to get that corrective lens. Micaiah has this, um, this vision. He goes to King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. They're talking about going to the war. And Micaiah says, don't do it. Like, the reason that you're going is because these false prophets here are telling you to go, but they're telling you to go because there's a deceptive spirit that's misleading you. And they don't listen, right? You go to 2 Kings 6, you have Elisha and a servant. They're surrounded by the Syrian army and they look out and the, the servant's terrified. And Elisha says, Lord, show him the true reality. And he sees beyond just the physical world. And he goes, like, he doesn't go, well, you know, that's not really part of the world. That's something else. You know, he's going, no, like, there is something beyond what I can see that is part of creation. And just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not true. So we get to the same type of, of idea when we come into the New Testament. Matthew 9, we have the first two people who call Jesus the son of David are blind men. They recognize the reality that even without sight, they can see what's true. They don't need their physical eyes to be able to recognize the reality. Acts 7, Stephen sees this revelation. He looks up and he sees something, and he's, he's recognizing something that is more than just the physical world around him. And so in the same way, when we get to Paul, Paul is blinded so that he can have the revelation. He needs to look beyond just the physical world to see something more. And so then when Acts 13 happens, we recognize that, like, this blinding isn't just something that is sort of like Paul just being um, cruel. He is, in the same way, sticking to this tradition of saying, look, I want you to see, to have the revelation, to look past just the physical world. Don't let the physical world so define what you know is true that you can't see anything else. So I've included a Calvin and Hobbes here because I, was, I like co comics and I felt like it was fitting for this one. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Calvin Hobbes, um, Calvin's a six-year-old little boy, and his stuffed tiger is normally inanimate unless he's alone, in which case the tiger talks with him. So Calvin says, I saw a cloud that looked just like me. Hobbes goes, really? Calvin's response, there was, there was my head, huge and white, floating in the ethereal blue. Obviously, it's a sign. Hobbes, of what? Calvin, very peculiar, high-altitude winds, I guess. Hobbes, science kind of takes the fun out of the portent business. 
Calvin. You know, some sort of cumulonimble thing. So in, in our, our, our hope or our, our, our desire to not be duped by the things around us, we lean on science to prevent us from being, dis, dis, you know, to be misguided. So we end up, you know, sort of sounding like Scrooge. In the Christmas Carol, Marley comes to him, the ghost of Marley comes to him, and he goes, you're just a piece of misdigested food. <laughs> right? So our goal, our goal here is, is we want to see the true reality, all of creation. What we want to see is that. And there is an answer. It's not to listen. There's one voice and only one voice who can show us the true reality. And that's God. And that's from the beginning. He is the one who can pull back the curtain and give us the revelation to see what is really going on. So I want to look, again, just 10,000 foot view, Luke and Acts. Because again, Acts is, in many ways, Luke 2. So if you look at the structure of, of Luke and Acts, Luke 5 through 9 has um, Jesus constantly in, the, in Galilee crossing back and forth over the waters. He's calming the waters. He's visiting all of the Gentiles. He's just back and forth, back and forth. Then Luke 10 through 19, that's where he sets his, 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 he's headed towards Jerusalem, but he's not there yet. And so he's in Judea and he's in Samaria. And as we talked about before, that's in many ways, northern and southern Israel. Like that's the way those start to be talked about. And so he's, he's all over Samaria and Judea. Then 19 through 22, Jesus is specifically in Jerusalem, and there's a major focus on Jesus as the contrast between the temple and Jesus. Like this is the contrast, the true temple and the false temple. The pivotal point here, again, is the cross, resurrection, and ascension. Those are Luke 22 to 24 in Acts 1. So those, you know, again, overlap. Right comes after that is Pentecost. And those two events, you'll notice the structure, those are the, you know, in the pivotal moments. Like, these are the things that everything changes because of these two events. Then, you know, to parallel things back out, the disciples are now in Jerusalem, and they're spending a lot of time in the temple. And again, it's this contrast between Jesus as the, or the, the disciples and those who have been redeemed in Pentecost and the actual false temple, right? And that's what, you know, culminates in Stephen's, Stephen's speech. From there, you move out into Judea and Samaria. You get to see uh, um, Philip going all over Judea and Samaria and Peter following in, in suit. And then finally, we move out in 13 into the Gentiles. So the structure is, if you, you sort of from, start from the outside, it's Gentiles, Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, and then Pentecost and the cross. Like those two events change everything. But you see, like that, this isn't just you know coincidental structure. Like this is Luke is communicating things. He's he's trying to saw, help us draw and to see things. So we'll come back to the structure. But I just want to start here with, with that. So I, I just recently finished a book called Dominion. Really enjoyed it. Um, it's by author Tom Holland. No relation to the Spider-Man character in the DC world. Um, he wrote a book, and the interesting thing is, Tom Holland's not a Christian, at least when he started writing the book. He is not a Christian. He actually is an author who writes about Greek and Roman history and about uh, medieval history. And he, he starts in the introduction basically saying, the reason I wrote this book is he said, the more I've studied history, the more ancient history, I just can't relate to it. 
The very things that are acceptable behaviors are completely foreign and just wrong to me. And he goes, I, I'm trying to understand, like, how do I explain that? And what he come, he's come to the res, re, revelation is, which is a subtitle, how the Christian revolution remade the world. Not a Christian, and he recognizes the reality that there's only one thing that it can explain where we are today. Christianity has completely remade the world. And I think that's pretty amazing for a non-Christian to be able to, to step back and recognize that fact. But what's interesting to me is, is that's, that's honestly what the gospel and Acts are announcing. They're announcing the start of a new world. This is the beginning of something new. There's something that has completely changed and transformed everything, and it's what happens at the cross. It's what happens through Jesus, and it's the bringing about of something new. So the Gospels are announcing something. For instance, consider John's Gospel. John's Gospel starts in the beginning. Was the Word. He's leaning heavily into this new creation theme. By the end of it, where are we? We're in a garden. We're leaning into this new creation. And if I say new creation, I feel like most people start to feel, feel comfortable with that. If I say new world, people start to get a little uncomfortable with that. So let's just keep looking at this. Again, the idea is, is to get the lens, to see the world the way that God wants us to see it. And scripture is allowing us to do that, to give us that revelation of something more. And consider the baptism. Where else do you have the spirit hovering over the waters? and the Father speaking. <laughs> in the beginning. All four Gospels include this. They're all leaning into this. Do you see new creation has come about? A new world is being started. So let's just start from the beginning. What is it look like for an initial creation? The very first creation. And again, we're going to broad brush stroke it here. God creates the world. From the chaotic waters, he brings up the land. And then we move to the garden. So the structure is world, land, garden. That's the structure. That's just the way God creates. World, land, garden. Where does he put humanity? In the garden. He doesn't put them out in the world. He puts them in the garden. He starts them in a place where he can mature them and grow them into something that is ready for more responsibility. He starts them in the garden so that they can learn, so they can grow. But they choose not to. They choose to disobey the single rule. <laughs> and so they're sent out. Again, and as, we, as uh, my father taught on a couple of months ago at this point, um, humanity isn't sent out as sort of a, um, a judgment where it's just like, well, you know, you disobeyed, you're out. No, the danger is, is to be in rebellion in God's presence is dangerous. So humanity is sent out into the land. But he doesn't leave them there. And you can see that in the Cain and Abel story. In the Cain and Abel story, we see how God is there talking to Cain, saying, Cain, you know, like, you, you know what the right decision is here. But Cain chooses disobedience also. And so he is sent even farther out. And so we get to then the genealogies, and they start to spread out into the world. This culminates in Genesis 6, where humanity is now so in rebellion that they have joined with supernatural beings to be in full-out, full rebellion of creation and God destroys the world. But he doesn't just leave it that way. He brings it about, about a new creation. You think, figure, think about the flood. Here's the dove hovering over the waters. 
land comes back up out of the waters. Noah sets up a garden. Now Noah is the one setting up the garden, not God. He's taking on more responsibility. He's obedient to have done what, was what he was asked to do, and so he's been given more responsibility. He now sets up the garden. Noah now is the one passing judgment on his kids, not God. He's taken on more responsibility. And so we can see this, this structure where we're moving from world to land to garden. We start in the garden because we need maturity. We need to grow, and we need to be taught. And as we do, we can move out into those other things. And if we're obedient, then we'll do it well, which is what we're going to come back to. That's the whole point of what we're looking at with Acts, is, is, is are they doing it well? The, ta- the challenge is, is the majority of the time as we're looking through this, people don't do it well, right? Like, that's the challenge. People are not there. They're disobedient. And so as they move out into the next thing, they're doing it poorly. They're not following the guidance that they're given. And so son, um, Noah's sons go out into the land, and by Genesis 10, you have, again, them covering the, the earth. So... I want to look at the day of the Lord. I'm going to pull one more, one more theme or idea together with this, and then we'll, we'll get, all, get back into the New Testament. Say that. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book. When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be. A whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward, and he's swallowed up by death. Now, after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb. It's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills, 
was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon, the oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So is Jesus going to confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel, all humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. If you want the rest of that, that's on YouTube, Bible Project, Day of the Lord. I'm just going to stop right there. So the day of the Lord has the imagery of the end of the world. And, you know, so we, we're going to look at, we're going to look at why that, that's the case. Um, day of the Lord is supposed to deal with, you know, the fact that all nations face this temptation to become like Babel and Egypt. Um, they just become the archetypes for all the stories that follow. God has moved future events. He continues to do that. Um, he's going to bring about liberation from evil. And what we see with Jesus is, is that he deals with the true root of the problem. Nothing more transformative than dealing with the true root of the problem. He's not just, con- just continuing to just wipe out nations for the sake of wiping out nations. He's, dealing with, he's come to deal with the true thing that really drives all of this. And so that's, if we're going to see something as completely revolutionizing the world, there is nothing more revolutionary than what Jesus does. Amos comes and announces the day of the Lord on northern Israel. And sure enough, here we come into, into the Acts, and we see Stephen announcing, hmm, Israel's become nothing different. They have fallen to the same thing. They've become just another Babel, another Egypt. And so how, how are we going to get free of this event? What are we going to do? So go back to the day. So the very first day that helps us to rec- understand or recognize the other days that have come and how God has addressed this evil. Moses and the ten plagues. The ten plagues are nothing more, to, in, in one sense, are a decreation event, right? They are dealing with the three parts of creation, the water, land, and skies. Uh, waters turn to blood, the land and animals die, and the crops are destroyed by hail and locusts. Skies darkens over the land and there was no light. It's a, an undoing, it's a return to that chaotic state that we started from. Creatures don't stay in their 
designated areas. The frogs come from the water, lice from the land, flies from the sky. So all of these things, they're continuing to start going places they're not supposed to. They were supposed to stay in their designated realms. They don't. Um, instead of creation of the firstborn humans, there is the death of the firstborn humans. So cre creation is being undone in this very event. So if that's true, if there is a decreation event, if the world is ending, then there should be a new world that starts. And sure enough, we do. We see Israel being brought through the chaotic waters onto the dry land. And God leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them a garden, the tabernacle. And so humanity starts there. Now they're, they're going to go into the land, but when they go to go into the land, they choose disobedience. They go, yeah, no, you know what? It looks pretty scary. We're going to wait. And so they do, and they spend more time in the wilderness, being matured, being made ready, so that when they go into the land, they can. And they go into the land, and they do what they were set out to do, mostly. <laughs> we get to the judges, and we see how they're relating with the world, and it's a mess. They barely got, you know, they got the land thing sort of done, but when they moved into the world, they've, they have no idea what they're doing. They've just completely made a mess of it. So we just look at that structure. We pull back and we look at that structure again and the repetition that just keeps happening over again. World, land, garden. Humanity starts in the garden, then is taken into the land and then into the world. That's the pattern. The question is, is how well do they execute that plan? They are given responsibility and their responsibility grows as they're obedient. If they choose disobedience, their execution of the next phase gets really bad. So we come back to the Gospel of John. New creation. Here it is, in the beginning. And where do we end the Gospel of John? But back in the garden. So the question, John leaves us with the question, okay, so now we're in the garden. We've, we're back to that Genesis 2 story. How are we going to move outwards? What are we going to do with that? And Acts is the place that we start to see that. Okay, humanity is now going to move from the garden into the land, into the world. They're going to do that. They're going to be responsible for that. How is that going to be executed? But let's put some details together. Again, just looking at this, there's an end of a world and a beginning of another. Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus says, in this generation, and then he gives a bunch of details. Now what happens is people get real uncomfortable with saying there was an end of a world or that these things happened. The idea is, again, we're put on the glasses, get the corrective vision to see the fact that things, if there's anything that is more fundamentally transforming to the world than Jesus' death on the cross and the Pentecost, what is it? Like, the world is completely revolutionized. It has been remade because of what, what, the, what happens in those events. So when, G, when Jesus says in, Math, in Luke 21, and there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding and what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, power and great glory. Now these things begin to take place. Straighten up and raise your head, because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. He foretells that, you know, like, you, you don't want to be here when these things are taking place, that, you know, you don't want to be stuck in Jerusalem when this happens. And he says... Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until this has taken place. Every other time this generation is stated, it means what it means. People get uncomfortable 
was saying that that's really what happens. Put the corrective lenses on, and, and what we're saying is, is, is that as we look, as we look at what has happened, the world is completely and utterly remade in what happens here. Those events change everything. Acts 2. Verse 17, this is Peter, no, this is Peter talking, and he's quoting from Joel. And they're, they're going, well, what's happening here? What is happening here? And so Peter answers, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. feel pretty good with that. Then verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's like, do you see? The day of the Lord has happened. Things have been transformed. Things have been changed. But the gospel authors, what Acts is trying to show us is that they are living in the end of a world and the beginning of a new one. What we live now is in something different. They are trying to help us to see. Do you see how much things have changed? And that's what Tom Holland is getting at with his book. He's going, you go back and you look and you realize what type of world that was. It's unrecognizable to us. What is acceptable behavior? What does power look like in that world compared to ours? What does acceptable relationships look like? They're completely unrecognizable. So if we pull back now, again, high 10,000-foot view of Luke and Acts. Now, Jesus, in Luke 3, he's baptized. And we see this new creation event, this theme idea coming about. But then we ask the question, why do we think that Jesus is the one who should be setting up, say, the new creation? Like, is he the one? Why should we believe that? And Luke 4 then moves into, and we have Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And the very thing that humanity failed at, he, he doesn't. He gets it right. And then we start to see him casting out unclean spirits, and we see him healing, and we're seeing that what type of creation is coming about, what Jesus is going to bring about, is transformative. And he's the only one who can do it. And so then we get to Luke 5, and all of a sudden, Luke, you know, here we are, Galilee, and Jesus going back across the chaotic waters and calming the storm. And he's spending all this time out in the world. He then moves from the land, that to the land where he's in Samaria and Judea. And then he spends all this time, or he spends his time in Jerusalem, specifically focusing on the temple and this contrast between the temple and Jesus as the temple. The new garden. New world set up. We're not qualified to be in the new world. What's going to allow us to be in that new world? Jesus' death, resurrection. Right, so like, those are the things. You can't go into the new world if you're not transformed yourself. You are new creation. And so Pentecost then is the pouring out. The spirit has been poured out into so that you can live faithfully in that new creation. Those things have to happen so that then you can start in, in Acts 2. They're starting in Jerusalem. They're moving out into the land and then moving out into the world. So here, that's where we are, Okay we're now moved out into the world in Acts 13. We're starting to move out into more and more complicated things. We've seen them being faithful, being guided by the Spirit, but things are not exactly the same, so we're looking at how are they faithful, what does that look like? 
I want to, before we move into that specific portion, I want to add a couple clarifiers. One, Luke shows that Jesus is setting up a new world and showing how a member of that world looks like. That's what Luke is about. Acts is the body of Christ, moving out into the new world, learning more about to, how to live in this new world. So Luke is Jesus setting it up, but then Acts is about the body of Christ, actually living in that new world. What does this new world look like? What are the rules? What are the boundaries? How are those things working? And the Spirit is guiding and teaching them how to do that. The world has been, me, been remade because of the action of Jesus and his bride. Now, another clarification here. It doesn't mean there isn't a future day when things are even more fully set right. However, if we are always looking to the future for the day when things are set right, at the expense of action now as the part of the body of Christ, then we have missed our vocation. And this has been the challenge for many of the, like the, you know, the, corporate church, which is we get so focused on, well, the world is going to end, so therefore, let's look forward to it. Yeah, the world ended, <laughs> and a new one's begun a couple times. And each time, the humanity is invited to vocationally do something, not sit on the side waiting for it to happen. We are called to be active participants in the kingdom of God. Okay, so I, okay, we're going to come back to Acts 13 and 14, but to do that, we're going to look at Acts 9 and 10 first. So I, I mentioned the fact that I think it's ironic. Paul strikes Bar-Jesus with blindness. So if you just look at the story of Acts 9 and 10, Paul is struck with blindness. He will be find, found at the street called Straight. When he's struck with blindness, they lead him by the hand. Paul preaches in Damascus, and he has to flee for his life because of the Jews. Paul then goes to Jerusalem where he preaches again. He has to flee for his life. <coughs> Peter heals a paralyzed man. Then Peter raises Dorcas from death. And finally, then and we get into Acts 10 and into 11. We get this clarity on what is the function of circumcision in this new world. How does this look? What does it mean now that the people of God no longer are defined by circumcision? So then we come to Acts 13 and 14. So I'm just going to show you the parallels here. Um, Acts 13, 14, and 15. Paul strikes Bar-Jesus with blindness. Just as Paul will be found on the street that is called straight, Bar-Jesus is making straight the path, uh, crooked the paths, straight paths of the Lord. Just like G um, Paul is led by the hand, so Bar-Jesus went out seeking people to lead him by the hand. Um, Paul preaches in Antioch, where he's driven out of the city. Paul preaches in Iconium, where he has to flee for his life. Again, contrast these with exactly the same stories. It's the same, you know, it's the same pattern. Paul, uh, Peter heals a paralyzed man. Paul heals a crippled man. Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. Paul is stoned, but he rises and enters the city. And finally, then the Jerusalem council has to decide on circumcision. So you just see this all the way through. What are we supposed to do with this? Okay, the humanity has moved out into greater responsibility. Notice, it's no longer the spirit striking Paul blind. It's Paul doing the, that. He's, he's, taken on the he's taken on greater responsibility. It's through the spirit, but he has taken on a greater responsibility. When he raises, when he heals the paralyzed man, 
people don't turn and repent as they do in Acts 9. <laughs> no, as Donna read this morning, what happens is they think they're gods. Like, things have gotten more complicated. As you've moved out into a greater and more responsibility, things are more complicated. It's not simpler, it's more responsibility. Humanity is called into more through the Spirit to be responsible. We're moving out into more and more responsibility. In the same way, in Acts 10, it's very clear what the Spirit wants Peter to do. You're to go with these people, this is the vision, make, a, make connections between those things. Acts 15, then they have to make decisions based off of those things. There is discussion. The Spirit works through the discussion. But it's, the Spirit doesn't show up and say, okay, I, I'm telling you, this is exactly what I want you to write down. There's greater and greater responsibility for people as they move forward and out into the world. And this is the call from the very beginning. Humanity is called to greater and greater responsibility. The only way that that can be happen is through obedience, through walking with the Spirit, that you can make that move outwards and forwards. And so the world has been fully and completely transformed. It's been remade because of what happens in Jesus' death, resurrection on the cross, and because of Pentecost. Questions? Comments? Richard. Vineyard. It says Noah sets up a vineyard. It, it, it's just, you know, um, we can look at some of the, the specific words that are used throughout, um, but each one of those, there there's, starts to be these parallels where you're saying, oh, this word starts to show up in that word, but in just broad strokes here is what we're looking at here. So Noah sets, or Noah sets up that vineyard, and it's just like, well, where did that come from? Why is that there? You start to look at the other stories along the way, and you're like, oh, I see. Like, this is world land garden. There's the garden. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I wasn't aware of that. Okay. Yeah. Others? Okay. Lord, I thank you because of what you have done on the cross, because of the pouring out of your spirit that you have made a new creation. You have made a new world. Lord, we pray for faithfulness, for living into that. That as we've been transformed, so we would go out and transform. Not on our own power, but through yours. In your name, amen.